0: This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. You know, this episode got me thinking about all the silly things guys do because of a girl. Ladies, don't let anyone fool you. Sure, guys do some crazy stuff to earn the, um, you know, the company of a of a girl. But, and hear me out, earning their acceptance and adoration are, in my opinion the single biggest driving force for the vast majority of men. And I'm not talking about those losers you find at some dive bar at 2 a.m. either. I'm talking about real men, guys who would lay down in traffic if you asked them to, because they value your worth as a friend and as a partner. Now, a thousand years ago, companionship and marriage had a slightly different definition. We've talked about that before. But the principle is the same. In this episode, we're going to see one man start a war in order to show his new wife the respect he feels she deserves i mean his own soldiers actually died for him to be able to honor his wife with a gift befitting her honor and her station in life this is episode 113 and it's entitled all over a girl thank you for listening and i hope you enjoy the show Roger de Hauteville, Count of Calabria, was enjoying his Christmas holiday in the new Norman stronghold of Troina in Sicily's northeastern tip. The year was 1061, and before it would turn to 1062, Roger would receive a letter from Mileto, one of the two places he called home back in Calabria. No doubt Roger's face broke into a, a smile, a big one, probably, one I imagine traveling from ear to ear the moment he heard or read the message. See, something I've yet to say so far about Roger is that Roger was madly in love from the moment that he left Normandy and headed down to Italy. This young man was, he was quite smitten. Actually he was smitten by a lady back North in Normandy. And by all accounts, like, I mean, every single contemporary or near-contemporary account that wrote about Roger's life. By all accounts, this love was a truly genuine love, much like Paris and Helen's back in the forgotten days of the Trojan War. Only this young lady was not yet married, which was fantastic for Roger. Unfortunately, love in a marriage simply was not valued like it is today. It took a few more centuries for the idea that marriages can be based on choice and love and mutual respect. Marriage up to this point in the Middle Ages was widely regarded as a strategic union and nothing more. But Roger? Oh, he loved this woman with his entire being. In fact, it could be said that secondary only to necessity, a necessity existing only from the Norman practice of primogeniture, Everything Roger was doing in southern Italy was driven by this love. Being second in line to inherit the father's position made you pretty much destined for either obscurity or the cloth. But being the last among more than ten sons as Roger was, well, Roger had not a snowball's chance in hell to inherit a single blade of grass back in Normandy. So yes, he followed the path of his older brothers and headed south to Italy. But his ambitions were driven by the love he had for this woman. So who was this lady? I mean, she seems kind of important, as she is the driving force behind Roger's high ambitions and risky sense of adventure and conquest. Well, Her name was Judith. History knows her as Judith of Evro. Roger knew her as a lady he met a couple years earlier, most likely at a feast in the court of Duke William. The beginnings are lost to the mists of history, but we know what happened afterward. These two, it seems, Romeo and Juliet style, of course without the tragic ending, fell madly in love with each other, but there were obstacles in the way to their marriage and future life together. Judith of Evro was the daughter of Count Baldwin IV of Flanders and Ellen, Eleanor of Normandy. Now, Eleanor was the daughter of Duke Richard II of Normandy, making Judith the granddaughter of Duke Richard II. That said, who else do we know was a grandchild of Duke Richard II of Normandy? That's right, Duke William of Normandy. And as of 1062, the Conqueror was still in his future yet, but making Duke William of Normandy and Judith Evro first cousins. And it seemed too involved at the time to go into such detail, but since it's necessary to understand Roger's obstacles in marrying Judith of Evro, I'll go ahead and say it. Do you remember the, the whole reason for the Pope's decision not to allow William and Matilda Flanders to marry in the first place? Well, see, the Pope declared the marriage not valid because of the crime of consanguinity which is the marriage between people the church deemed to be too closely related to one another. This very connection between William and Judith is the exact point the Pope pointed to as being the smoking gun of William's and Matilda's consanguinity. It was Judith of Evro at the center of it. Eleanor of Normandy's marriage to Count Baldwin IV of Flanders. And now this same connection was what lay between Roger de Hauteville and his love, Judith of Evro. Again, just to be clear, Judith was Duke Williams' first cousin by both marriage and by blood. It was an incredibly strong connection with the powerhouse of the duchy. So, forget the love component for a moment and focus on the strategic social and political advancement Roger would have if he could just marry this woman. But how? He was the 12th son of a lesser nobleman in the wilder northwestern reaches of Normandy. Though Papa Tancred was firmly in Duke Williams' camp, certainly by 1062, there was still so little that Roger could expect to receive from his father. So the obstacle of legitimacy was Roger's main drawback. And this is where a man named Robert de Grantmanil comes into play. Robert de Grantmanil was the second son to Robert I, De Grantmanil, making our Robert really Robert II. But the, for the sake of clarity, I'm just going to call him Robert de Grantmanil. And I hope I'm pronouncing that last name correctly, if that's okay with you. Too many Roberts and Williams and Richards to be keeping track of all of them. I'll try to keep it all as simple as I can, though. So Robert de Grantmanil had a clear aptitude for learning. And this was realized very early in his life, which began in the year sometime in the mid to late 1030s, but no one's really quite sure. He was just a decade or so younger than Duke William, if that helps. He took to reading and writing very quickly, and this exceptional talent for learning earned him the position as one of Duke William's squires for a time. William even knighted Robert de Grant Manil at one point, too. But as much as Robert loved warfare and knighthood, and he did, he chose to become a monk instead. He quickly became the abbot of St. Evro in Normandy in 1059. This career path, that of a squire to the duke and then abbot of a major monastery in the French kingdom, was without question an exception. Robert de Grantmanil, by his mid-twenties, had firmly set himself apart and was widely regarded as one of Normandy's more important figures. As it was, abbot Robert de Grantmanil became caught up in one of Normandy's many scandalous land grabs occurring throughout the 1050s and into the 1060s. See, another Norman noble family demanded Duke William grant them a specific stretch of land. But this stretch of land belonged to a man named Hugh, that is, Hugh de Grantmanil, Abbot Robert's eldest brother. Robert spoke out against this. So William called him to court, and when Abbot Robert found that this land grab was highly suspect, he spoke out against it again. It wasn't meant to be some great call against the Duke, but we all know how Duke William handled such things. Whipped up in his frenzy, Robert de Grant in the year 1062, well, he was really forced to escape Normandy and the French kingdom at large. Get as far away from Duke William's grasp as he could. So, how does Robert de Grantmanil play into this romance for the ages between Roger and Judith? Well, it turns out that Robert de Grantmanil was the half brother of Judith of Evro. And knowing full well about their intentions to marry one another, he had just a year or so earlier advised Judith to do something drastic in order to keep her family from marrying her off to someone else. Keep in mind, first cousins to Duke William, Duke William probably had a bit of an investment in who Judith would marry, someone he could capitalize off of. See, Roger needed a little time to establish himself back in Italy, but he had no way of knowing how long it would take. Robert de grantmanil advised Judith to take the vows to become a nun. Now, she never took the full set of vows, which would have made her a full-fledged sister to the nunnery but she did just enough to keep her safe from being married off. In the meantime, Roger de Hauteville traveled to southern Italy and gratiated himself with his stingy, stodgy older brother, Count, at the time, Robert Giscard, watched Robert Giscard become a duke, earned a small sliver of land as Count of Reggio di Calabria, and began a career of risk-taking in Sicily that played out perfectly, more or less. And it seems now we've come full circle. Enjoying Christmas (laughs) in the Sicilian city of Troina, Roger received the letter saying that Robert de Grantmanil, in his escape from the wrath of Duke William of Normandy, had withdrawn Judith from her nunnery and rushed down to southern Italy to not only deliver her to Roger, but also to appeal to the Count of Reggio for a new place in which to set up a new life. In addition to himself and his half-sister Judith, Robert brought with him Judith's other brother and sister, as well as a group of 11 monks. It's worth noting that Robert de Grant did try to stop by the Vatican on his way south to seek redress against Duke William for the hostilities waged against him, but that didn't go very far. Remember, the Pope was actually really appreciative for the support of the Duke of Normandy, helping him to reach the papacy recently. So the Pope just stayed out of the whole affair. It would in fact be the same Pope who would grant his blessing and papal banner to Duke William in the conquest of England in just a few short years. So you can see where the support of the Pope lied, Robert de Grantmanel wasn't getting anything out of him. Roger himself, that is Roger de Hopeville, rushed back to the mainland upon hearing that his love Judith was there. As Malaterra wrote, quote. The abbot had sent his messenger to Roger to tell him to hasten back for their marriage. Hearing this, the count was overjoyed for she was beautiful and of distinguished birth, and he had wanted her for a long time. End quote. Arriving in Reggio, and then hurrying off to a tiny town called San Martino d'Agri in Calabria's Val de la Sline, Robert de Grantmill married them right then and there. From there, the happy couple, beside themselves on the turn of events, celebrated their wedding in lavish style back in the city of Mileto. Musicians, feasts, days and days of celebration were held there, even welcoming Duke Robert giesgard who, as John Julius Norwich writes in his book The Other Conquest, quote-unquote received them well. Norwich also states that, quote, it was undoubtedly a love match and the young couple seemed to have been very happy but their honeymoon was all too short, end quote. What a way to bring in the new year, though. The year was now 1062, and Roger was married to the woman of his dreams. Now he had to secure a proper wedding gift to her. We saw this with William and Matilda already, but it was imperative to impress not only the bride, but the bride's family by gifting her large tracts of land. Remember, land was where wealth truly came from. It wasn't the treasures and the money itself. It was land. If by chance the husband were to die, besides, she wouldn't be left without anything to her name if she didn't have that land. It was a type of um, medieval life insurance in a way. But what did Roger have at that point? He was the Count of Calabria in name only. See, remember how generous Robert Giscard was with treasure and money and loot? Okay, now do you remember how stingy he was with land? Because he knew that real lasting power was found in land ownership, not riches? See, Giscard, remember that is translated as the fox or clever or wily. See, Giscard had made his little brother, Roger, Count of Calabria, but hadn't delivered fully on the promise. In practice, Count Roger was only Count over Reggio, and the very tip of the boot the toes, if you will. He was promised the rest of Calabria, but as he needed to stay on his brother's good side, he hadn't pushed the issue yet. Sicily was his ultimate goal after all. But for the moment, he needed land to offer his new bride. His very honor was at stake. And it may not be that way today, but a thousand years ago, honor was the social and political currency among the nobility, Again, Roger's honor was on the chopping block here. Roger knew how Robert Guiscard would take the request to make good on his promises, so, to ease the blow, Roger decided to do a quick campaign into Sicily once again. Malaterra wrote, quote, He had no intention of abandoning his purpose. Once his army was ready, he was not a bit deterred by his wife's tearful pleas, but, leaving the young woman in Calabria invaded Sicily once again, taking with him the squire, Roger, as the duke's representative. End quote. Yeah, another Roger, not Count Roger. This younger Roger was Duke Robert's squire and would act as the duke's spokesman on the campaign. Calling in Ibn Altimna and his forces, Roger de Hopeville besieged the city of Petralia, it was a very fast siege as the people, both Christian and Saracen, concluded that surrender and fealty to Duke Robert Guiscard's rule was really in the city's best interest. So Petralia was conquered rather quickly. From there, Roger split from Ibn al-Timna, ordering the emir to up the pressure on Muslims across the eastern part of the island. Roger went on to Troina to check in and leave more knights to garrison the mountaintop fortress before heading back to Calabria once again. It was an even better start to the year. Roger must have been flying high, though still incredibly nervous about asking Robert for the rest of his promised land. But it was time. The time for Robert Giscard to pay up had come. The Lombard practice called gab, which was the ancient policy of enfeoffing one's wife in a manner befitting her rank and station, as Norwich states, was still at play. Morgan Gap, which was honored and followed in Norman, Italy, required Roger to honor his wife with large gifts of land, but he was currently unable to do that because of his brother. Once again, Roger's very honor, as both a husband and a nobleman, was at stake. Roger intended to remind his brother that after he had bailed him out back in 1058, Giscard had promised him all of Calabria. Emphasis on the whole, remember when I saved your butt part. Norwich writes, quote, messengers were accordingly dispatched to the Duke of Melfi, excuse me, to the Duke in Melfi, carrying Rogers' formal demands, together with a warning that if these were not fully met within 40 days, he would be compelled to obtain his rights by force, end quote. Wouldn't you know it? Look at that. A Norman civil war was clearly on the horizon. Shocker, should Giscard refuse this? Giscard had some serious decisions to make, mind you. It wasn't just another instance of an older Hopeville brother bullying the younger one. See, the Byzantines were still holding out against the Norman siege in Bari across the peninsula. If he let up on the siege by pulling troops away, that could only make it easier for the Byzantines to remain there, or even push outward from Bari. Bari was essential for his domination over Apulia, and he could not afford to ease up the pressure there. However, if the Duke of Sicily had any intentions of actually ruling over Sicily, he would need to continue to press his recent advantages there, if not more so than how he was handling Bari. And now, his own little brother was threatening civil war. As Norwich writes, quote, on this occasion in particular, he could ill afford to antagonize Roger, end quote. And if all that wasn't angering Giscard enough, word came from Sicily that the emir under his influence, Ibn Altimna, at the behest of Roger's orders to push the Norman message even further into the island, he was ambushed and killed. Because of this, the Saracen buffer that the Normans had enjoyed on the island was now non-existent and those men who had recently been garrisoned at Petralia and Troina had deserted their posts and escaped to Messina. Everything had collapsed under its own weight in Sicily. And Robert Guiscard had acted just as we would expect him to act. He gathered an army of his own and hurried to Mileto where Roger and Judith were living, and he besieged the city of Mileto without any notice to the count. This is what Malaterra wrote about Giscard's actions toward Maletto. This is Malaterra. Quote, Although Roger was at the time suffering from sort of a fever, the count was at Garachi, where he had been called to deal with various matters. There not only was he ill, but... Through some unknown contagion in the air, he lost some of his men. However, when his brother arrived as though he was an enemy, he rushed furiously to Mont Sant'Angelo and attacked and cast down with his mighty lance many of his brother's army. After this attack, he prevented them for a long time from making camp, as they had intended, on this mountain, and indeed on the next one too, which was Monteverde. The city was, however, besieged, and on both sides, youth and a desire for praise led many to attempt warlike exploits. While so many were in consequence charging into the fight, a young man on the Count's side called Arnold, who was his young wife's brother, a man well suited to the profession of arms, was cast down while he attempted to strike down another, and, sad to say, was killed. As a result, there arose the most appalling grief and lamentation, not just among those whom he was helping, but even amongst those outsiders who were attacking them. While his sister was celebrating his funeral, and he was then buried with appropriate ceremony, the count, who grieved for him no less than did the young man's sister, sought vengeance for him. He attacked the enemy and struck down and killed many of them. Seeing his men suffering every day such encounters and gaining little advantage, the duke built two siege castles in front of the town, reckoning that hunger and exhaustion could more easily weaken the defenders. The count, however, harassed these castles daily. When he knew the duke to be in one, he attacked the other. When he saw him go to aid the first one, he abandoned that and went straight through the city to the other, and so was continually changing his position, end quote. So in order to save Mileto and his wife, Roger escaped the city and rushed by the cover of night to the nearby town that he was just at, Garache. Guiscard chased him there, but the people, loyal to Roger, slammed the doors in their duke's face, angering the duke even more. Now, from here, it just gets weird. Even Norwich describes it as belonging, quote-unquote, <laughs> to that ridiculous halfway world which lies between musical comedy and melodrama. It is recorded in fascinating detail by Malaterra and is worth summarizing here, less for its intrinsic historical importance than for the light which it sheds on the characters of two extraordinary men and on the way in which affairs of state were occasionally conducted nine centuries ago. I'll do you one better, John Julius Norwich. Let's just read straight from Malaterra himself. Quote, Now the duke was friendly with one of the leading men of Garache, whose name was Basil, and was invited by him to dinner. He covered his head with a hood to prevent anybody seeing who he was, entered the city, and went to the latter's house to eat. He went in, and while the meal was being prepared, chatted with his host's wife, Melita, quite unaware that anything was amiss. The citizens had, however, been informed by one of the servants from the house that the duke was inside the city and, suspecting treason, were very much disturbed. The whole city was in an uproar, with everyone running about all over the place. They then rushed fully armed to the house in which he was, intending to attack it and drag him out. The man who had invited the duke knew the lawlessness of his fellow citizens, and knew also that he would be unable to resist them. But, as the man fled to a church trying to save his life, he was struck down and killed by the sword of one of his fellow townsmen. His wife was treated so vilely by the citizens that she was impaled with a stake from the anus through to the breast and forced to end her life with a shameful death. End quote. Man. <laughs> uh, I guess that's how being canceled went down in the eleventh century. Okay, sorry, let's let's get back to the, the it's not it's not a funny scene, but it there's a bit of um bleak and dark comedy to it at the same time. Think about it, you know, Duke Robert chases his brother to Garachi and happens to know a guy in the city and is like, hey, let's have dinner, I'm here. He sneaks into the city and all of a sudden, you know, his buddy gets killed. His buddy's wife gets impaled. And I mean, what's he to do at this point? So back to the scene, here's Malaterra again, quote, seeing this, the Duke despaired for his life, which is not to be wondered at, especially since he saw citizens perishing in such a savage way from the cruel swords of their fellow citizens, friends at the hands of friends, upper class at those of the lower forgetful of any benefits that they had previously received. He who had once been the destroyer of many thousands stood like a soldier who was unprotected and without his weapons amid the threats of his furious enemies and the Leonine ferocity, which had been to some extent part of his nature was transformed into a lamb like gentleness. <laughs> but when he saw that all of the more sensible people insofar as they Foresaw the outcome of the situation, were doing their best to restrain the extraordinary fury of the ignorant mob, which had little foresight about what advantage or disadvantage might accrue to them if he were killed. The Duke's spirits were considerably restored. He spoke to them with these words Do not, he said, be falsely overjoyed lest the wheel of fortune which at the moment favors you and is against me turns in future so that it shows its adverse face to you since nobody enjoys any advantage without divine favor you should discuss amongst yourselves the circumstances through which you have me in your power for i was not brought to be present here through your own strength nor did i enter the city to plot some harm against you some of you have done fealty to me and I have made an agreement with you, which I do not believe that I have in any way violated. Perhaps your fealty is to your advantage, and provides you with an opportunity, since its strength is known to us, and makes you acceptable to us, and more deserving of reward. There is no merit in so many thousands of men depriving a single and defenseless person of his life, especially when this has come about not through military prowess, but by chance. And by dishonestly breaking a treaty. Nor, I think, will it profit you any more than it will me, for my death will not remove my people's yoke. But rather, to revenge, they will become an even greater and more burning menace to you. There are indeed knights who are most loyal to me. There are my brothers and my kinsmen. If you should perjure yourselves and pollute your hands with my blood, there will be no way that you will be able to make your peace with them. Furthermore, what you have done will become common knowledge through every land, and not just you, but all your descendants will incur eternal shame for your perjury, particularly if you were to strike me down without hearing or proper judgment. Well, after this speech, the wiser men of the town were better disposed towards him, and quelling the rioting mob, they placed the duke in custody until they could decide what was to be done with him. That is the end of Malaterra's quote. So obviously the grand speech that Robert Giscard gave the people of Garachi, his back literally and figuratively against the wall, while the people of the town brought their pitchforks and Twitter accounts to within inches of his neck and his online reputation, well, the Giscard lived up to his name. His cleverness saved his neck and his future employment options intact. He had weaseled his way into mere custody rather than being slain in the streets outside of a local church or, horrifically worse, being impaled on a stake like his gracious gracious host's wife. Now, from here, the twisted comedy continues because Malaterra tells us about Giscard's men outside the walls hearing about it. There was a flurry of outrage, many ready to storm the walls, consequences be damned, but cooler heads prevailed. Personally, if I were Robert Giscard, I'd be rewarding those cooler heads when I got out of there because the city would have definitely lost its sense of reason and self-control and taken it out on him. These cooler heads sent word to Count Roger inside the city, informing him of what had happened. Besides, by all accounts, everyone, And it seems like that's not an exaggeration. Everyone loved Roger de Hopeville. Count Roger was a soldier's soldier, a man's man, a clever and charismatic guy who drank with the best of them, but always found himself attending church on time, every time. When I said before that Roger seemed to be the best of the entire Hopeville clan, it seems that it wasn't just a historian's summation of Roger de Hopeville's character. It seems that everyone else at the time even acknowledged as much. And outside of Garachi, these cooler heads were hoping that Roger's law-abiding and family-oriented disposition would force him to intervene on behalf of Duke Robert. And they were right. But see, Roger wasn't inside the city of Garachi at that precise moment. This was Roger's land, and he knew it well and the people were overwhelmingly on his side of this issue, let alone any issue, really. Remember, this was Calabria, the place where Robert de Hauteville, Robert Guiscard, first earned the nickname Guiscard. That wasn't even 20 years before this incident. Robert had destroyed Calabria, even coming back to it another to give it another round of devastation, resulting in the horribly deadly famine of 1058 which was just four years before this. Calabrians had long memories, and they held grudges. So Roger and his treatment of Calabria since he became their count, though not perfect, because Norman rule was never a good thing, necessarily, it was still infinitely better than the Giscard's rule on any given day. They helped Roger move in and out of the city at will, really. And when Gisgard entered the city under the cover of a hood, Roger wasn't even there. So outside of Garachi, Malaterra wrote of Roger, Roger's reaction, quote, Disturbed by the dark rumors of his brother's misfortune, and indeed quite moved to tears by thought of their blood relationship, the count humbly begged his men to hurry and rescue his brother. He took up arms and rushed as fast as he could to Garachi there he asked the inhabitants to come outside the walls and talk to him and gave them safe conduct to do so there roger spoke as follows he said quote, well my friends and fidelis he said i do indeed begin to realize your loyalty and i am most grateful to you for recognizing my brother when he came into your besieged town capturing him and for staying loyal to me your loyalty towards me has been shown in this important matter but i do not want to be revenged upon through your hands or weapons as you suggest he has so roused my anger that i shall not be satisfied if he meets death from any other arms than my own if you think that by doing this killing you are serving me and ingratiating yourselves with me you should know that i entirely forbid it so hurry and hand my enemy over to me It should be enough that you will be the first to know of his suffering. I shall do as you advise and make him finish his life in agony. Let's have no delay in handing him over, for I shall gain no advantage from the siege of this city until I avenge the injuries that I have received from him. Indeed, his whole army will abandon him, unable to bear his crimes any more. transfer their fealty to me, and choose me as duke. I was judged unworthy to hold even a little land under him, but once he is dead, I shall with luck take over all the rights which were formerly his. I am not the sort of man whom you can delay with tricks. If you try to put things off any longer, then your vineyards and olive groves will be destroyed. We shall besiege your city, and when our siege engines appear, no defense will avail you and it will fall. If you resist us and are captured, then you will be treated as enemies and will be tortured like him, end quote. And by the way, that is not just end the end of Roger's speech to the people of Garache, but also Malaterra's quote as well. Yeah, so Roger started out compassionate and understanding of the actions of the people of Garache who felt that they were acting on behalf of their count, doing something good, you know. But Roger takes a turn, putting on full display his innate Hauteville tendencies toward violence and revenge. He says that basically if they lay one single hand on one single hair of his brother's head then he will combine the Norman forces under his command and level the city. But, don't worry he still loves you and he loves your intentions. Roger de Hauteville was just as complex as any other Norman ruler at the time. Malaterra rightly concludes the following quote after hearing this speech the inhabitants of Garachi were terrified quote. It seems they actually asked Rogers permission to turn around and head back into the city to retrieve the Duke. Now once once inside the city the city leaders got together and discussed what to do exactly. They decided to ask the Duke prior to his release that as long as he lives he will never build a citadel in their city. Effectively, Duke Robert will stay the hell away from Garaci forever. Of course, Robert Giscard promised as much, but Malatari even knew why they called him Giscard. The chronicler wrote, quote, little realizing the Duke's cunning, they were deceived by this oath and left lamenting. For not long afterward, the Count, who had not sworn it, did what the Duke had sworn not to do, end quote. So they didn't think the whole thing through, basically. They got Robert to swear that he would stay away, but they didn't see that Roger was Duke Robert's man, Count being given his title and lands and legitimacy by a higher duke. So Count Roger would end up controlling the city soon enough. Now, either way, the citizens of Garachi led the Duke outside the walls to where Count Roger was waiting. When the two men saw each other, Malaterra wrote, quote, A sight. They had hoped for but not expected until fortune had turned to the better. They burst into tears and eagerly embraced each other. The Duke swore to the count that he would no longer retain what he had previously promised him. Quote. And there we have it. This little civil war with Norman, within Norman Italy between two brothers, which had the potential for unheard of destruction to the southern half of the peninsula, well, it ended amicably enough ending with the two brothers publicly embracing each other, tearfully that is, comically, and declaring the whole affair was over. Roger accompanied Robert back to San Marco, where they split. Roger heading to Mileto and Robert heading home to Apulia, to the city of Melfi, where he called home. But Roger found an interesting string of events that had just occurred in Meleto. See, Mileto was also being besieged by the Duke's forces while the whole affair in Garachi went down. And when the Duke chased his little brother to Garachi a few days before, he had left his bellicose badass wife, Sickle Gaeta, in charge of the siege of Mileto. Well, when word arrived from Garachi that Robert was being held by a rabble inside Garachi, two things happened. First, The knights under Roger's command inside Mileto led a charge upon the siege castles outside the walls and actually took them by surprise, capturing nearly all of the duke's men in one fell swoop. The second thing to happen was Sikolgata, quote-unquote, thinking she was a widow, says Malatera, fled to the city of Trepea, where there were no soldiers terribly loyal to Roger. And just when we thought that the issue was resolved and the two brothers came to an agreement on the land that was promised to Roger, Robert Guiscard once again reneged on his promise just days earlier. You know, when his little brother, once again, saved the Duke's skin, literally. Robert Guiscard, upon hearing what had happened to his men and his wife at Mileto, while he was in the custody of the people of Garachi, Well, he was so enraged that he sent word revoking the promise to Roger. Everything was right back to where it started once again. But thankfully, it wouldn't last as long or even come to blows this time. See, after the Duke was able to stop and think for a moment, because, you know, Normans were a little hot-headed, if you haven't picked that up, including meeting back up with his Duchess, Sikolgata, well, see, he was able to see the previous events for what they were. He was able to firsthand see the effects that Roger was having on Calabria, a region whose inhabitants already harbored a, a deep, everlasting hatred for their duke. Robert saw firsthand the loyalty that Calabria at large had to Roger and was increasingly developing for Roger with the events of Moletto, but especially at Garachi. He was going to find himself fighting an increasingly harder fight if he continued to hold out on owning up to his promise to Count Roger. He needed to give in, even just a bit. So, meeting his little brother in the Val de Crati, they agreed to share Calabria in its entirety this time, equally between them. What would this entail exactly? Well, being his count, Roger would rule over the entire region, but the taxes and levies across the duchy of Calabria would be split half The brothers split up at that point, and now the issue seems to have been dealt with. Roger was free to give his wife a portion of his lands in Calabria. Roger loved his, this woman so much that he was willing to wage a war against arguably the most hostile person in the Mediterranean region, from west to east and north to south. Robert Giscard was widely regarded as such, but Judith of Evro, well, she was worth it. I mean, young Roger had had done something that not even Robert had been able to do. He'd become a kinsman of Duke William of Normandy, and the whole affair worked out well enough. Well, except for the people of Garachi, as I mentioned. See, after the brothers split with a pretty firm agreement this time, Roger reevaluated his situation in Calabria. He looked around and he had lost quite a bit actually in the whole ordeal. Granted, Robert Guiscard lost way more in the mini-Civil War, but Roger wasn't exactly getting out of it unscathed either. He burned through quite a bit of money and he even lost a number of soldiers, so he was desperate to build both of those back up so as not to welcome any challengers. Remember, he had a rather powerful and wealthy emir across the Strait of Messina who was pretty unhappy with him at the moment. And with the death of his only real ally in Sicily recently, well, who knows what fortune would bring if the emir decided to act against him before he was able to build himself back up again. So he traveled the countryside of Lower Calabria collecting his half of the taxes and levies. And then he reached, once again, Garaci. A city which was eternally grateful for, but simultaneously quite miffed at, their audacity to act on his behalf with no guidance from him to do so. Garachi was a mixed bag. To Roger, though they were loyal to him, they still acted on their own behalf at the end of the day. Nearly murdering in cold blood their Count's big brother. If they acted on their own then, what's to say they wouldn't do it again in the future? that time, potentially, against him. Malaterra tells us that when Roger arrived in Garachi, he did something he hadn't done on that tour of Calabria. He told the inhabitants that he would build a permanent citadel right there outside the city. That's what I had mentioned earlier. It was the very thing they had feared Duke Robert would do to them. Now, as we know from our deep dive into the Norman conquest of England, castles were used for two purposes, really to allow for swifter control over the local population and to allow for a more complete collection of taxes and levies and other resources the nobility required at any given time. The same was true for the Normans in the south, as it was, as it was for the Normans in the north and the Normans inside Normandy. It's just, you know, Normans Normaning. Malaterra wrote about the Garachi Castle, quote, the people of Garachi objected on the grounds of the oath sworn to them by the Duke, end quote. Now, a quick interjection by me here. Remember, the Count is a vassal of the Duke, so in the eyes of the people of Garachi, Roger was the Duke's actor. Thus, the castle built by Roger was nothing but an extension of the Duke, so the promise extended to Roger. They just failed to be specific in the original oath sworn by Robert, I guess. The nobility and Demons, after all, are the most legalistic beings known to creation. Malatera continued, The Count replied, Since half of Garachi is mine, the Duke can observe the terms of his oath in his part and not break them. But I am not constrained by any oath or promise which I have not made in my part. Realized that they had been deceived by the Duke's cunning, the inhabitants of Garachi then abandoned. Their foolishness. Notice here that Malaterra, writing on behalf of his benefactor, Count Roger, called the actions of the people of Garachi, quote unquote, foolishness. It's just more of that age old elitist propaganda. We even see it today. Garachi gave in, seeing there was no winning with the Hautevilles, so they asked for a compromise instead. No castle nearby but they would supply Roger with whatever he needed. Roger agreed. Right when you thought Roger was acting in good faith to the people who single-handedly stopped the recent Hauteville Civil War from blowing the lid off of southern Italy's tenuous peace? Well, Roger acted like any other ruler in the 11th century, Norman or otherwise. He acted on behalf of the interest of the nobility, and not necessarily on behalf of the far more numerous peasantry, and lower nobility. It's almost like we peasants never learn, do we? <laughs> so right when Duke Robert giesgard returned with his wife, Sickel home to Melfi and Apulia to do his own rebuilding of his forces and support systems, Roger had brought Calabria under his control once again, rewarded his wife with a dowry befitting her high birth and settling into planning his next venture into Sicily, a dream that was merely paused for the time being. Before long, Roger launched another campaign across the Strait of Messina with just over 300 knights. He brought along his new wife, Judith, too. He arrived in Troina and immediately set about reclaiming the city and calling back his soldiers who had fled back to Messina upon hearing of the assassination of Ibn Altimna. Within a couple weeks, Count Roger was in firm control of the mountaintop fortress of Troina, and from this point on, Troina would remain Roger's primary base of operations as he sought out the conquest of the entire island. From there, Judith of Evra would say goodbye to her beloved husband many times as he went out for weeks or even months on end, sweeping up and down the valleys and mountains of the island, bringing back more and more wealth, men tributes, and control over Sicily. Troina became the couple's primary home for many years. And it is from Troina that we pick up on the next episode. Where would Roger set off to next, in the late spring and early summer of 1062? How exactly would he bring the island under his control? And how would Judith react to her being captured by the people of Troina within a matter of days really of her moving there how would roger react is the real question thanks for listening until next time